turn to Titus chapter 2, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. I want you to get your note sheet out, okay? Take some notes. Uh, you can also get the note sheet on the app as well, and I want to get you back into this rhythm for a couple reasons. Number one, um, you just remember more of the things that you write down, uh, so writing things down is a good learning tool. It's a good memory tool. Uh, that's number one. Number two, we're getting ready to launch our fall small groups. We're just a couple weeks away. We're going to ask every single one of you uh, to make the commitment to be in an eight-week small group as we go through Nehemiah together, and uh, and the way we do small groups is they're sermon-based, so you prepare for your small group by taking notes, and uh, and that will get you prepared. So we really want you to be uh, in that. I am excited about today's message, um, and so buckle up, okay? Um, and so last week, Pastor Andrew did a great job in just kind of reminding us, so Paul, there's a Pauline letter, and as Paul does in most of his letters, is he starts with a understanding of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So last week, Pastor Andrew reminded us that we're grounded in the gospel and the church guards the gospel, develops a leadership structure in such a way that guards the gospel. And then, as he does in most of his letters, then the back end of the letter uh, is the overflow of the gospel. So as a Christian, this is, well, Christ is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and transforming us uh, from the inside out. And so this is what a Christian life should look like in regular life and in regular behavior, okay? So the danger of the back end of the letter is it can sound like when I'm preaching it, behavior modification, right? Just be good, go out here and be good. And that's not what the scripture message is. about. The message of the Bible is be transformed. You're spiritually dead and we need the spirit of God to wake us up and make us alive again spiritually alive, and then in spiritual life, we respond to the message of the gospel. And the gospel message is this, you're a sinner, your sin has left you dead and in, as an enemy of Almighty God. But God in his grace does not leave you there. He has given us his very best gift, his one and only son. And Jesus did what you could. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place, and it was a substitutionary death where God poured out his wrath and hatred for your sin and my sin on him instead of you and instead of me. And they laid his dead body in a grave. Three days later, he bodily rose from the grave, defeating our last enemy. And we respond to that message by repenting of sin, saying, I'm a sinner, I've disobeyed a holy God, and I believe the gospel and I receive Christ into my life. And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit that now takes residence in the heart of a Christian, we're transformed from the inside out. Everybody with me? That's the gospel message. And so today is now the overflow of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have any idea what this is? Any idea what this is? How many of y'all even, raise your hand if you know what this is. That's depressing. Okay, this is when you know you're old, okay? Uh, for those of you who don't know, Netflix got their start not as a streaming service, but as a DVD service where they would mail you DVDs. And by mailing you DVDs, you no longer had to go to Blockbuster or Redbox. You would just get your DVD mailed to you. You'd watch it, and you would then put it in the envelope and return it. Uh, I got a, a bulk email uh, about three months ago that said that Netflix would no longer be mailing me my DVDs. And uh, it was a bulk email. It went to about three of us in the country, and, uh, and I was part of those three. And uh, I was showed this to the worship team in the back. One of the young people was like, have you like kept that for years? I was like, no, I just got it two weeks ago. So uh, 
You're wondering why I still get DVDs. Great question, and I pay for that privilege, okay? So um, I uh, now have gotten a raise uh, because Netflix is no longer going to take my money to mail me DVDs. So there you go. I made me feel old, right? How many of y'all that even know what they are go, you're old or I feel old, right? And so today, uh, there's two old things here. First of all, uh, Paul gives us some old school truth. There's some old school truth here that some of you, as we go through the text, are going to feel uncomfortable with. And you're going to be uncomfortable with it because the culture is attacking the family the way God designed it. So much so that when we read the basic constructs of a family, we all go, can he even say that? You know, even in a church, should we be saying that? It's old school truth. Secondly, Paul actually gives some encouragement and challenge to old people of how we should be investing our lives in the next generation. So so here we go, okay? Uh, Let's jump in. Titus chapter 2. First point I want to bring out is actually a point to me. It's not even to you guys, all right? It's a point to the pastor. So Paul is writing Titus, this pastor, and he said he gives instructions. So last week he gave instruction on how to set up the church, how to organize a church so that it guards the gospel and makes a difference. Today, point number one of verse one, Titus chapter two, it's a specific verse to Pastor Titus and what he's to do. So point number one, the role of your pastor is to equip. Titus chapter two, verse one. He says, Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You don't know what the biggest problem in the U.S. is right now? We have too many pastors that don't teach sound doctrine. And what happens is the church then gets weakened in its understanding of the true and living God, and the church is the conscience and the leavening of the culture, and therefore, since the church doesn't know who the true and living God is, the culture doesn't know, and we have pivoted so hard that when I talk about roles in homes, men and women, the roles of men and women in homes, some of you this morning are going to balk at it and go, well, how could that? It's just so 1950s, right? When I would propose, it's actually so biblical. And, and the role the pastor teaches sound doctrine because what you believe about God has extremely practical touches What you believe about God influences everything in your life. It drives me crazy when I hear a politician go, well, yes, I'm, you know, name the denomination or faith that he's in, he or she, right? Like, I'm a Catholic, but it doesn't affect my politics. And I'm like, the God that I worship affects everything about my life, right? It's not like he's God up there and Sean does what he wants afterwards, like, What you believe about God touches every single aspect of your life, amen? And so so Paul says to Titus, he says, says, you have to preach sound doctrine. Now, let me give you a couple practical touches quickly, and then we'll move on from this. Number one, did you know that Coastal Church right now fills six pulpits over nine services every single Sunday? Isn't that cool? So we've, we've trained and we've raised them. We established six preaching pastors that are opening the word of God and they're teaching sound doctrine. And the elders of these churches and of the overseeing elders and the campus elders are responsible to make sure that sound doctrine is being taught. And just so you know, okay, the average sermon takes about 15 hours to craft and put together. 
okay? Uh, a pastor spends probably 10 to 12 hours developing, reading, praying, studying, writing. Uh, most pastors spend a couple hours practicing their sermon. If you were to come by my home office on Saturday morning, I spend a couple hours every Saturday morning going over my sermon that I'm about to preach. You, if you walked by my home office, you'd be like, why is he talking to himself in there? You know, And it's just practicing, right? Because uh, I want delivery to be impactful for the cause and, and the gospel of Jesus. That's why in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles uh, were doing the teaching and preaching in the early church, and then all of a sudden there was this ministry need of feeding the widows. And in Acts chapter 2, the apostles said, it's not good that we be pulled away from prayer and the word. And so they developed a, mi- a, a ministry leaders called deacons. And the deacons were raised, served, the word deacon means servant, they were raised up to do ministry in the church. Everybody with me on that? So your pastors are to be preaching and teaching the word of God. Pastors, number two, second practical point, that's taken out of 1 Timothy 5, 17. It's not going to go up on your screen. Pastors actually deserve to be paid for this effort. Okay, moving on. All right, so. um, And the job of the pastor is to equip the members to do ministry. Everybody with me? So one of the, I, I think poorly so, we have given the, the pastor, uh, the name minister. How many of y'all refer to a pastor as minister, right? You're, a, you're the minister. I actually think it's a really bad term. I'm not even sure it's biblical. It means, ser- it comes from the word serving or servant, okay? But in that, we think it's that guy's job up there on stage to do the ministry. But Ephesians chapter four says, it's the pastor's job to equip the saints to do ministry. I think a better title for your pastor, so I like the, word, the title pastor. Actually, I don't really like titles at all. Just call me Sean. Okay, but whatever. But if you have to call a title, it's not minister. How about equipper? They're equip, your pastors are equippers so that the people of God can do the ministry out in the community. Everybody with me on that? That is the job of the pastor. And how does that happen? By teaching sound doctrine. So if you're new to Coastal, okay, we're going to open the Bible every single week and we're going to say what it says. Amen? And we're not, because it's the Word of God and the God's Word doesn't change. And it's our job to teach sound doctrine. All right, point number two now. Now Paul gets practical. Titus, I want you, he gives instructions to what I'm, point number two, older folks, okay? He gives instruction to older folks. And so Titus 2, 2 and 3, older men. Older men, you're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, let me define the word old for you, okay? In the original language, in the Greek word here, the word for old is captures with it the idea of if you eat dinner before four o'clock and go to a restaurant early to beat the crowds, okay? That's kind of how the concept, all right? Now, I'll let you decide if you want to call yourself old or not, all right? But um, old, old age, you ready? Somebody here is offended. Like, I do eat dinner at 3.30, you know, and it's because I get up at 3.30 in the morning, you know, kind of thing, whatever. Okay, you ready? Old age by itself does not guarantee godliness. Gray hairs doesn't mean you've grown to be spiritually mature. 
And Paul is saying, so again, remember here, Crete is this terrible, verse 12, remember last week, Paul quotes one of the poets of the, from Crete. And he says, as one of your own philosophers says, Crete's full of drunkards and liars and gluttons. Like it's a horrible, there's no Christian influence here. And so as Paul has planted these small gospel outposts called churches, and he instructs him to raise up elders on these small churches to guard the gospel in the church, to leaven the community with the gospel, okay? And so in this, he's now instructing the church, this is how you're gonna make a difference. Leaven the culture, leaven the community by as you age, you grow in godliness. And part of godliness, letter A, is sobriety. Sobriety of mind. As a Christian, the Holy Spirit should be guiding our minds, not alcohol, not pot. Now, the Bible doesn't teach you can never have a drink. I would not be doing the Bible a service, but I can tell you on a practical level, I have seen drunkenness destroy families in a moment. I, I have seen, and here's what I always say about sin, sin clusters. There's never just one sin. There's usually three sins around it. Because sin loves to hide, right? And if it's going to hide, then there's probably lying and there's other sins going on, right? Sin clusters. Now, I, I have seen one act of drunkenness or hide destroy a family as other sins surround it. Listen, it can take a lifetime to build a good and godly reputation, and it can take 30 seconds to destroy it. Amen? We're to be sober-minded, Letter B, as we grow older, spiritual dignity and maturity. As we age, there should be spiritual seriousness. We're not to be grumpy old people, but, but there's a seriousness about spiritual things. I would encourage you as you age that you and your family should be growing to be a spiritual patriarch and matriarch. My wife and I have had that privilege in our home watching our now grandparents and who are with the Lord, but I would consider, and now seeing our parents be kind of like the spiritual patriarchs and matriarchs, we're really grateful for what they've passed on to us. There should be a maturity that your family is looking up to you and seeing a spiritual seriousness about you that your kids and your grandkids appreciate. There's letter C, to the old, as we grow older, we're to be temperate and sensible. That means that we're using our time, our talent, and our treasure to bless others for the kingdom. We, we, we're, we're, we, as we grow older, we're resisting the world's attractions. We're, we're, as we grow older, we're, we're understanding that we're numbering our days, and we don't have as many as we had last year. Right? I, said, I said to my daughter recently, I was like, yeah, I don't know, maybe, what do I got, 20, 25 more Christmases if God's gracious to me? She's like, ooh, Dad, don't say that. And I'm like, there's, there's actually some health in going like, man, I, we number our days. And so I better, as I grow older, I better be strategic. Amen? And thinking about like, what, God's got me here, and I got this amount of time, and I got this amount of talent, and I may have a certain amount of treasure, how can I use that to, to bring glory to God and expand the gospel? Because guess what? Guess how much of your stuff you're taking with you? None of it. None of it. 
So I better be thinking as I grow older, like, how am I using my time, talent, and treasure? Careful in speech, Paul says, letter D, right? You don't join in the gossip. You're old enough to know there's probably two sides to every story. So I'm not just going to join into the next greatest story. I'm going to be cautious in my speech. And letter E, and this is really important, as we grow older, our responsibility is to disciple, teach, and mentor. As we grow older, we are to disciple, teach, and mentor. Because in the next section, we're going to talk, he's going to talk to younger women and younger men. But he starts with, in this section, Paul encourages the younger men and the younger women to learn from an older man and an older woman. He is saying, as you age, you better be discipling someone. Amen? So you ready, old folks? Who are you discipling? Who are you grabbing coffee with once a month? Men, who are you? What younger, and let me tell you something, these young families and God has blessed Coastal. We got young families running around everywhere. Praise be to God. If you're sitting here in the service and you're like, man, I can't believe that person sitting behind me and the baby started crying. That really disturbed me. I sit here and go, praise God we have babies here. Amen? Um, our Battery Park campus, they haven't had kids for decades. We're now redoing the kids' room because there's kids coming. Okay, praise God. We have Battery Park's doing a baptism in a couple weeks. They hadn't done a baptism in decades. Praise be to God. Like older folks, we should be using our time, talent, and treasure to make disciples and see the kingdom go forward. And Coastal, it's through gospel outposts, through our discipleship method of connect, grow, serve, and multiply. So old people, who are you discipling? Well, Pastor John, I don't know how to disciple. That sounds really intimidating. Here's how you do it. You ready? When small group season starts, I want you to look around your small group table. I want you to find one person that looks younger than you, okay? And if they're not younger than you, then you should say, what vitamins are you taking? Because I need to take what you're taking, okay? So find somebody that looks younger than you. Say, we're going to grab coffee once a month, and we're going to go over the sermon. We're going through Nehemiah. I'll tell you what, you and I each read Nehemiah, and we write down two things that stick out to us, and we're going to just talk about life, and I'm going to be praying for you throughout the month. That's what discipleship looks like. Who are you discipling, old people? Ladies, who, what are the two women or three women in your life that a young mom who's stressed out and marriage is tough and you've been doing it for 30 years and you've got 40 years and you've got a couple things you can teach the young mom and men, who, who, you've been doing it married for 30 or 40 years, who's the young man who's saying, this is what it looks like to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Who are you mentoring? Because Paul says older but young people Invest in the younger people. We're not just retiring and treading water. We're investing, we're discipling, and we're teaching. Number three, younger church members. Paul now goes to younger church members. Now, here we go, okay? I really believe that this is a really, really short letter. In some ways, it's kind of proverbial, right? So general principles that Paul is giving this church in Crete. Um, he's not trying to say, I always say this, when you teach, if you try to say everything, you don't say anything. Everybody with me? So I can't nuance every part of this. We'll be here all day, and I don't want to keep you all day. Paul here is being direct and strong and abrupt. And so here it is, Titus chapter 2. I'm also not going to apologize for it because it's the Word of God. All right, Titus chapter 2, verse 4. 
And so, so older women, train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Now, this is a fascinating line to me, by the way, and it's a side note, and I'll come back to the verse in a second, but like, it's fascinating that Paul has to tell, I think this speaks as much to the culture of Crete as anything. It's generally not too, it's kind of a natural overflow being a mom, right, to love your children. I find it interesting that Paul, it's obvious that you got to say love your husbands because we're hard to love, okay? But the children seem easy, right? But here, I think the culture is so broken that Paul is teaching these young women, love your husbands and also love your children, okay? Everybody with me? So here we go, Titus 2.4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So here it is, letter A. Young women, Paul is reminding us of the glory of the home. The glory of the home. Paul is, again, if I say everything, I won't say anything. So I'm going to make gross generalizations here. I think Paul is reminding us of some of the natural bents and differences between men and women. Equal in soul, but different in role. In fact, some of you, it's so quiet in here because some of you are uncomfortable with the fact that I said there's differences between men and women. That's how far removed our culture has gotten from the word of God. It's gotten silly. Amen? It's just gotten silly. Of course, there's difference. It's not, there's not difference in soul. It's not difference in personhood, but, but we're different. Men do not give birth. I read, it, I read something this week that disgusted me. It was from a medical association that is now labeling women as egg-producing people. That is, thank you, that's disgusting. And it's just gross. Listen, we're going we're gonna to honor moms at Coastal Church because the word of God honors motherhood. It's a good and godly thing. And remember, if I try to say everything, I don't say anything. Paul's not addressing singles here. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, man, you can make a huge difference for the kingdom if you're single. You don't have to be married and have kids to make a difference. He's, he's trying to teach a new church in a culture that's not has any doesn't have any biblical or Christian influence about what the home should look, the glory of the home. Paul's not saying women shouldn't work outside the home. Proverbs 31 talks about an, a, a godly woman is an industrious woman. But I do believe that Paul is addressing some natural bents and a differences between men and women. Should men be nurturing too? Yes, but the natural bent of a mom is to be nurturing. And I think Paul is reminding us the importance of focusing on our homes while our children are young. We're to women, we're to you're to love your husbands and submit, not because your husband is perfect, but as worship unto the Lord. I'm not talking about abuse. You're being abused, come talk to one of our pastors at Coastal. We will get you safe and get you help. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about you've married another sinner, and he ain't easy. Amen? 
And some of you women that have been married for 40 years, this, this, te- this text is in the context of you mentoring some young women and going, this is what it looks like to be a godly wife. And by the way, the Bible holds men responsible for the home. The man is going to give the account of the home. A man is going to stand before God and give an account for their home. We see this in Genesis. When the first sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, Eve actually ate of the forbidden fruit first. But in Romans chapter 5, it's Adam who was accountable because he wasn't giving oversight of his home. In fact, I really believe the rise of the feminist movement is the fact that we as churches have not produced godly men. Genesis 2 calls a wife a helpmate. Helpmate is not a term of inferiority. Helpmate is actually used in Deuteronomy 33 to describe God coming alongside in military terms, helping Israel. So when God gives a man a helpmate, he's bringing a large army. That's what it takes. Amen? And I think what Paul's reminding is marriage is a lifetime commitment, but raising children is a season. Everybody with me? It's a tough season. It's a young man's game. I don't miss those years in some way. My wife would disagree. She loved those years. I was like, I don't miss it, man. I, I sleep through the night now. It's fantastic. You know, like, but it's a season that demands all of your attention. Amen? And he's instructing older ladies, mentor the younger women in the endeavors of the glory of the home. Letter B, the men here get one phrase, and I've summarized it for you. Young men grow up, okay? One thought to the dudes, self-control. It's the idea of mastering all the areas of your life to the glory of God, young men. In fact, I really believe the reason the culture has reacted so far against biblical and traditional views of marriage is because God, Young men are still immature in the things of God. Listen, parents, we should be raising young men that by 18, 20, 21, they're ready to lead a home. I'm not saying y'all got to be married at 18, 19, 20, 21, but they should be getting there. They're not kids anymore. Ready? Godly men. Let me give you some handles. Godly men should be sexually pure before marriage and sexually pure after saying I do, having intimacy with one woman for a lifetime in the commitment of marriage. Amen? Godly men should be pursuing their wives lovingly. Godly men should be working hard and attempting to grow their careers so that they adequately provide for their families. Amen? By the way, that's the end of this passage about working hard. Godly men should 
work hard and then come home and not sit in the lazy boy till, for four hours till bedtime. They should engage with the kids and they shouldn't just be sitting around relaxing and playing video games till bedtime. Godly men are not addicted to porn, pot, alcohol, or video games. Godly men prioritize Christ, family, provision, and church. That's what a godly man does. I just recently have picked up golf. I used to play years ago when I was single, loved it. And then for about 30 plus years, I put my golf clubs aside. You know why? I had other responsibilities. And I picked up golf and I bought new clubs and I went out with my new clubs and I tore hip muscle. And Doc said, six weeks, no golf. So should have done it when I was younger. <clears throat> um, an older man, it's your job to have one or two of these younger men in your life that you're discipling. And you're eyeballing a young man and going, hey, are you looking at pornography? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Can I help you with that? We are to be investing in the next generation. All right, number four, I gotta move quickly, okay? Number four, Paul, Paul says to Titus, and, and the overflow of our actions is it reflects the gospel. So for all of us, older men, younger men, homes, all that reflects the gospel. Show yourselves in all respect, Titus 2, 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, Paul is saying that our Christian testimony should be a testimony that's respected. Now, there are times when a culture twists what a Christian is doing and is not respected, but it's because the Christian is being firm on the scriptures, okay? So the early church was actually condemned. The culture called the early church cannibals, you want to know why the early church was called cannibals? Because they were worshiping the Lord and taking the Lord's Supper where Jesus and John 8 said, when you take the Lord's Supper, it's like eating my flesh and drinking my blood, right? Which we know is metaphorical. It's a picture of the gospel for us. But that went out in culture and said the early Christians are cannibals, okay? We live in a culture that if we're going to be true to God's word, we have to call some sexual sins sin, right? We can't waver off of that. And so because of that, Christians are being labeled as hate crimers, okay? We have to stand firm on the word of God. However, we can still be loving, amen? Um, we're 14, 15 months from a presidential election. Man, I, don't, I can't wait till 24, buckle up, okay? The culture's gonna come unglued, we should not be coming unglued. Your next president ain't going to save the world. Jesus and his gospel will save the world. So listen, you, you don't, did you know that 90% of communication is nonverbal? So real communication is actually nonverbal. Facial expressions, you can, you can say something hard with a tender facial expression and, you, and a person can know, like they, even though they're saying something hard, they love me. So guess what? Social media is not speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4. It's just, you might be speaking the truth, but the person doesn't know you love them because you're not really communicating. You're like, look, take, just take a break in 2024 from social media, you know, read it and be like, oh, well, I'm gonna vote for her, I'm gonna vote for her. I'm probably not gonna change anybody's mind. I don't know, right? Let's, let's let the world know we love them first as Christians, amen? Which leads to the final point, okay? It's reflecting Jesus in the workplace. Now, I'm gonna take the elephant in the room, and then I'm going to pivot, okay? 
the next two verses, Paul is addressing um, slaves and slave owners. Now, I'm going to apply this to work, okay, because I think it's the natural application. The, this passage and others in the Bible have been used by churches in the past to say that slavery is okay. The Bible does not endorse slavery. Slavery is a sin. Everybody with me? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time teaching about that aspect this morning because I've done it before. So about probably five or six years ago, I took the church through Philemon, and I probably spent about 15 minutes in a sermon talking about where the Bible calls and condemns slavery as sin. I'm going to upload that sermon by I, I mean somebody on my staff will, will upload that sermon, okay, on social media so that you can see it and listen to it, okay? And it will give you some really good handles on what does the Bible have to say about slavery and why it is a sin, all right? Um, and so I'm not going to re-preach that. I'm just going to be honest with you. When it comes to social issues like slavery, like abortion, like wealth disparity, like abuse, like poverty. I wish the Bible gave us more at times, and you do too, probably. But the purpose of the scripture is to take care of our greatest need, and our greatest need is that our soul individually be saved by sin, and then we grow with other believers, and by doing that, as the gospel changes us and transforms us, it slowly, like leaven, transforms cultures. Everybody with me? So the focus of coastal is that you would be transformed from the inside out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that, some of you are going to raise up and go, man, I really care about trafficking. And you're going to do all of your efforts towards trafficking in a good way. Some of you are going to rise up and go, I care about politics. I, as a Christian, I want to make a difference in the political arena. And we've got some of those in our church. I thank God for them. And some of you are going to rise up and go, man, I want to help stamp out abortion. And, and you're going to go and make a social difference as the hand and feet of Christ. But all of that grows out of First, our greatest need is that we're transformed by Jesus. Everybody with me on that? Okay, so that's my side note. Now let's go to the text. I'm going to apply it to work, okay? Because I think it's a natural application because I think that's what Paul's talking about. Titus 2, 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, okay? We as Christians are to reflect Jesus in the workplace. Christians should be the best employees. A Christian does not have the attitude that I'm not working hard because they don't pay me enough. A Christian works hard. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you a little political view of Sean Brown. Okay, you ready? I'm a red-blooded capitalist. If you can make more money, then go make it. Amen? Anybody? Go make it. But in the meantime, if you're working for a boss and they ain't paying you enough, then go improve your value to your boss or go start your own business or go find another job. But when you clock in and you're on someone else's time, you better be the best employee in that place. Letter A, committed to excellence. Paul says, we, we should be doing good work. Respectful to the boss. Honest. Not stealing from the workplace. Well, they got plenty of money. I'll just take this ream of paper home. 
showing a measure of loyalty. All right, not, not, I'm not out to get my place of work. I'm not going to wait for them to make an HR misstep so I can lawyer up and get them. It's not, what a, it's not how a Christian thinks. That's how the world thinks. We're to work hard for the organization. And the result is that the name of Jesus might be magnified in the community as we work hard and exalt Christ. Everybody with me? All right, I want to finish with a story and I'll get you out of here. And worship team, you guys can come on out. Um, Because our job is to leaven the community as servants for Christ. A couple years ago, I got a call from a complete stranger they call me up and they say, are you Pastor Sean? I said, yeah. Yes, I'm Pastor Sean. I said, I want to tell you a story. I said, we were tra- I was traveling from Richmond to Virginia Beach, and in the Hampton Roads area, my car broke down. I was stranded on the side of the road. A car pulls up behind me, and this person took care of all my needs to get my car back on the road. They got me into an auto store. They rode with me while we got towed, made sure the car was taken care of, got me back on the road. And during that time they spent with me, it became, they told me that they were a member of your church. They were a follower of Jesus. And I, I just wanted to call and talk to the pastor who's doing such a great job with his people. Last service clapped. Okay, so and I and so I said no, no. And so I said, don't clap. I said, don't clap. Because here's the deal. You ready? I've also gotten this. This is the honest and goodness truth. I have gotten emails from people in the community that said, I will never come to your church because I got cut off in traffic by someone who had a coastal bumper sticker on. So, okay, I can't take the praise and take the criticism. I ain't responsible for how y'all drive out there. All right, that's between you and God. But as this person talked to me, I said, I want you to know something. That's exactly who this person is. They have been transformed by Jesus, and they see every moment of their day as an opportunity to worship God in the ordinary. What Paul is doing here is saying we're transformed by Jesus, and then we're given an ordinary day. Old people, some of your ordinary day should be investing in young people. Young people, an ordinary day is raising a family, and it's hard. But you can worship God in the ordinary. Go to work and honor your boss and work hard as an opportunity to worship the Lord. And I'm telling you, God has given us as Christians the opportunity to worship in the ordinary. I was uh, coaching our worship team worship leaders. We, had a, we did a worship retreat back in uh, early summer, and I was t- coaching them. Now you guys are going to be attuned to this, but I was coaching them. I said, hey, listen, I really want you to think about when you invite the church to stand and worship. I actually don't like that language. Hey, let's stand and worship. Why, don't, why wouldn't I like that language? What does that mean? What are you implying? The only way we worship is through what? Singing, right? I said, what I'd rather you say is, hey, let's stand and worship the Lord in singing, right? Like, it's a specific way that we're worshiping the Lord right now. What do I say during the offering time to our guests? And I mean it. Like, we're not after your money. This is what? One of the ways we what? Worship the Lord at Coastal. And the reason I say that is, As we adjust our lives and live our everyday life the way God has called us to live it, it's all worship. 
Everything you do in your ordinary life is an opportunity to worship. So when you get up, when your alarm goes off tomorrow and you get up and you give a good day's work to your boss, as an, both to serve the Lord by serving your boss and serve your family by making an income and providing for them, that is worship. And when you raise a godly family and you work hard and you're in with the kids and it's all hands on deck and you go to bed exhausted because they got up through the night and you gave a good day's work and you, you, know, you did something for the church that day and you go to bed tired, that is worship. And when you change diapers as unto the Lord, because you understand you're changing diapers, you're raising these kids to the Lord, and you're praying over your children as you're changing diapers, that is worship. And as you do dishes, as they pile up over and over again, you're like, how can my husband or my wife go through so many cups? You know, and you're doing that. It's an opportunity to worship the Lord. And as you're physically intimate in your bedroom, in kindness and loving and have intimacy with your spouse, one man and one woman in the confines of worship, in, in the confines of marriage, that that is worship. And as you serve in your church as an usher or a greeter, that is worship. And as you make money and you live on a budget and you have enough to tithe and a little bit left over to share, that is worship. Everything in your life is an opportunity to worship. Amen. Amen. And when you fail and you lose your temper and you're not kind, you don't give a good day's work. We get to come to Christ and say, you know what? I didn't do that one right. Because that's what you called me to do. And I want you, God, to forgive me. And I want to start fresh tomorrow. My marriage is a challenge right now. God, forgive me. I said that. My speech wasn't kind. God, God confronted, forgive me. I, I, and we come to the altar. And in Christ, we get a fresh start every day to honor him, leaven the culture, for the glory of God. Amen, church? All right, prayer team, come on up. Worship team, come on out. If you came in this morning, we sang a song about being in the valley. When I'm in the valley this morning, if you're in the valley this week and you need someone to pray with you, that's what our prayer team's here for. Don't leave without being prayed over. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let's go out singing. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the gospel. It touches every act of our lives, God. It touches our free time. It touches our finances, our family. It touches our service at the church. As we age, you give us new responsibilities. You didn't call us to just retire and do nothing. You've called us with the opportunity to invest in others. And trusting to younger men and women the gospel so that one day when you're kicking dirt on my grave, they're passing on the faith to the next generation. Here we are in Yorktown, Virginia, worshiping the risen Christ 2,000 years later from Paul establishing some small churches in Crete because they passed on the faith to the next generation. We have that same opportunity. And when we fail, God, you are gracious to us, forgiving, patient, slow to anger because you've loved us in Christ. So we leave this morning reminding our hearts and mind at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. We need Jesus from beginning to end. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.